Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Neha Perky, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Stanford Children. Hi, I'm Sadie Rodriguez, a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Today, Neha and I have the opportunity to discuss uh, two recent studies of interest from all of us in the cardiac intensive care field. This was an article um, entitled Workforce Demographics and Unit Structure in Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care in the United States, and that was published in Cardiology and the Young in December of 2021, and we have both the first and senior authors here with us. Dr. Robin Horak, who's a cardiac intensivist and an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, and we're so thrilled to have you today, Robin, with us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. We'll also be speaking with the senior author, Dr. Katherine Krzyzewski. She's the Division Chief of Cardiology at the Heart Center at Nationwide Children's Hospital and a professor at the Ohio State University College of Medicine and is also a cardiac intensivist. Katherine has been a mentor to both Sadie and me, and we are really excited to have her and Robin here to discuss the content and the implications of their work. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely. So we just wanted to um, start off with sort of a quick overview of the article for any of our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it. This paper is part of a larger study that looked at a lot of different components of our current workforce and the futures for our, our specialty. But this specifically was looking at where we are right now. What is the demographics of our specialty And how are we made up in terms of our gender, in terms of our race, our ethnicity, and also how we organize our work? Uh, What do we do when we're not in the ICU? I think this really adds a just sort of a baseline of information, and it has some really important implications for who we're training and how we can address uh, some of the disparities that we see in our current specialty. How did you become interested in this topic? I will say that I was kind of added onto the group as a more junior faculty member uh, after I had done a national survey that looked at some of the aspects of cardiac critical care. And uh, it was really a pleasure to get to work with Catherine and a really diverse group of providers across the country to try to understand our field better. And we hope that this add some sort of baseline information to really kind of get more in depth about how we work, how we can work more in a healthy manner, and how we can make sure that our field is maybe more balanced or more uh, representative of the population in the United States. I think one of the things that really inspired me to look at this is, is having been in cardiac critical care for some time and really having been in it since its early days and seeing the evolution um, in almost everything. So from the way we train um, faculty um, to the way units are set up to really who goes into cardiac critical care. And it was it was a way to provide an assessment of where are we now? Uh, who, are, who, who are we? How have we, most of us trained? Um, how are units designed? And, you know, if you look in the literature or if a, a hospital or organization wants to create a cardiac ICU, there's not a benchmark to say, um, who should we hire? How many beds should we have? How should we staff it? What's the best model to work? Um, are there different models in how you work? Are there different models in how you train? Just provide a sense of where are we now, uh, which I think gives a, a nice flavor to that. You know, the, the other thing that really helped with that is looking at the 
the demographics were really fascinating. I mean, we all know that cardiology specifically as a field has been very late to become more gender equal. Only recently has it become, had gender equality. And when I say equal, I mean the equal percentages of men and women um, in the in the field. And, and when you add that to cardiac ICU, it's not surprisingly that it's been a fairly male dominant field. And so to look at that and say, where are we now? How, what, how much progress have we made? And, and how has that extended? Is it extending into leadership yet? Um, which, you know, you'll find out the answer is no. But those are the things that provide us a baseline of where we are now. And I think that we can use that for to really to inform the future. So that was actually our next question. So that dovetails very nicely that we wanted to specifically highlight that the demographic data shows that 58% of cardiac critical care faculty under 40 years of age are female compared to 25% of the faculty over the age of 60. And do you, what do you think are the implications of this shift to a more female CDICU workforce? And how do you think our field will have to adapt to these changes? Right now it's starting to mirror pediatrics a little bit more. You know, we know, and I've recently done a little research on this for another talk, but right now more than 50% of medical school um, enrollees are women. So around 55%. Now we're seeing about 70% of pediatric residents are women. So we're still a little bit behind in the cardiac ICU world, but we're getting there. I mean, 58% now are women um, and we expect that to increase in the future. I think that is going to become the face of medicine in the future, not just in pediatrics, although I think pediatrics is going to lead the way in how do we mentor women? How do we enhance career development in women? And I think that we can be a model for the rest of the medical workforce in how do we um, nurture, support, mentor, sponsor women to become leaders. And so I think that gives us the advantage to do that. Only an additional thing that I would add is that when we look at the roles that women have in society, we often, as a woman, have more responsibilities at home, whether it be childcare or just care of dependents, whether it's parents, siblings. And when we kind of start to think about the hours that are expected to work as a cardiac intensivist or really as a physician, even in other fields, as more women enter the field, I think we have to challenge what the expectations are for a full workday and make sure that there's really, I hesitate to say balance because I think that's overused, but that there's a real focus on making sure that we can be successful in sort of all the sections of our life. I would say that that's really a benefit for both men and women, and but maybe women drive that conversation more to say, hey, you know, there are other things that I have to do outside of work and I really need to make sure that I can be successful in all of those, those avenues. Yeah, I think that's really um, important. And I was shocked to find your survey showed 50 some hours work weeks off of service and a median of 84 hours during service week. And I thought it was just like me trying to hustle, not knowing what I was doing. (laughs) No, but to see that everybody has long off weeks, especially thinking that like our on weeks are hard physically, emotionally, sometimes mentally, really complex sick patients, a lot of complex interactions that we have to have with so many multidisciplinary people and trainees and like a lot of other demands and just taking care of a patient, you know, like a lot of cognitive burden and a lot of um, social burden sometimes. And then to also find that like our off weeks can be so long. 
I was really a little disheartened by that. Um, And I think that has been the historical and probably not just for cardiac ICU, although I think because we do night service, our hours do stack up. And as you said, it's not just the the quantity, it's the the intensity of those hours. You know, it's spending time with families, spending time with very critically ill patients who might not survive and really being the face of their care to the family and directing that is, it's a really emotionally heavy thing that we do. Um, and, and it really struck me that when we talk about burnout and we talk about longevity in our field, it is one of those things that that we may probably should um, at some point step back and say, is this sustainable? And is it sustainable as a field to have people work over 80 hours on a service week and almost 60 hours on a non-service week? I mean, that's an incredible number of hours, not to mention the intensity of those hours. And and I think it may be a way that in the future, we're going to need to look at things differently to say, is this really needed? And is it really the best thing for the patients to have somebody that really is not at their best after that many hours? That's such a great point. And hopefully this survey allows us to, in all of our programs, have have a sense of what the median work hours are. And so that's not to say that that's acceptable, but it does give everyone a chance to have a baseline when you're sort of talking with your division chief or your chief, or you're looking or you're the director and you're thinking about, should I be adding another intensivist? Are we really focused on people's wellness? Should we cut down the number of service weeks, recognizing the really extensive hours that one works during those weeks and make that sort of the FTE that might be a little bit healthier for the whole group and keep faculty for the long term? And this, I think, helps us to at least know what that at least median baseline is. And and I have to say, even at my program personally, this has really helped us to re sort of discuss our goals as faculty and what should be an FTE and what actually should be beyond an FTE. And I think it almost makes you want to take a step back and just think about like, what is value? Just because quantity is there doesn't always mean the quality is there. Like if you're running ragged on a 60 hour, like an off week, when you just came from an 80 hour on week, just because you're there a long time might not mean that you're producing what you want to produce. And maybe we should be looking at value in a different way. Maybe it doesn't have to be a timestamp or like this societal traditional construct, but it could be an opportunity for us to sort of redefine what is the need, what's the gap, and are we able to produce value that can stand on its own, but maybe it looks a little different. And it's even higher for those who are directors is what we found. So as you get more responsibility, your off week, off service week hours are getting higher. And I think that that's that's really something that's very important to address. It feels like things are being added onto people's schedules as opposed to the schedule is being adjusted. And that particularly seems important to address. Uh, And I don't know how you feel about that, Catherine, as you're a director, but I look in the future and say, I do not want that. We need to have more balance. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that we didn't capture here, and I, I think you all probably see this too, is that the more senior you get, the more outside responsibilities you gain. And those responsibilities don't go away when you're on service. And so the challenge for me when I'm on service, being a division chief now, is 
all those division leadership activities continue. And so you either try to have time to do it during the day and hope that you'll in between, you know, patients doing badly or in between notes and in between answering questions, you, you know, get some things done, feel guilty because you're asking your co-attending to cover for you. Um, I feel very guilty when I'm on service because the person on kind of knows that invariably I will have to like have a meeting that can't be um, rescheduled or you're working at night trying to catch up on emails after, you know, and being up many, many hours to do that. And, and I think that's where this doesn't even capture that. I mean, it's a rare day that you get all your notes done before you get go home, for example, but yet you have to do them before the, the next day. It's a rare day that you get all your emails answered. It's a rare day. So I don't even think this captures what we do at night when we go home. And so those things, I think, add up really substantially over over time. I think it's also important for us as a group to be thinking about what are our definitions of academic productivity? If we're looking at 80 plus hour work weeks and then, you know, additionally almost 60 hours a week, something, and most people feel like maybe they're not as academically productive as they would like to be, it feels like there needs to be some rebalancing of what it is that we're doing. I wanted to ask, you specifically commented that there were no gender differences in the hours reported. Why did you specifically comment on that? I think that there are some conceptions sometimes that one gender will work more than the other gender or that there are differences. And so it seemed important to just validate that there really aren't differences in in how much hours that people are spending at work or involved in work-related activities. So, I, I, you know, for me, that was just uh, an important thing to, to demonstrate. The article also has some interesting findings about the other clinical duties of cardiac intensivists. You talk about the median number of weeks of service. Uh, which calculates to about 15.7 weeks per year, including day and night shifts, median call pay, the age for reduction or ending night service requirements. How do you expect that individual centers will use this demographic data that's reported? And do you expect that these factors will become more standardized across centers over time? I would hope that uh, there will be more standardization. And, And I think to some degree, even just reporting it, I've seen that now with even our trainees that are leaving their training, they have a a baseline to understand. So if they're going to a program and say they're saying, you know, an FT is going to be 16 weeks a year and you have something reported in literature to say, hey, you know, that that sounds high. What are you expecting me to be academic with that? I think that that's that's definitely already changing the field. And I would and I suspect that there's going to be some more consistency across the board now that that information is out there. And I also think as we think about being an intensivist, not just for, you know, five or 10 or 15 years, but really over the course of our career, hopefully this information will start to say, not just how do I do this when I'm, you know, new and in my 30s or my 40s, but how do I make sure this is healthy for me when I'm in my 50s or my 60s? And one big area that I'm really interested to see if it will grow is really about how long should someone do night call? I think that it definitely affects you over time. And we really should ask that question as a field, should there be decreases or, or, or firm stops to say, you know, when you're 65, I think it's probably a lot harder to do, to ask somebody to do night call and to deal with those, those shifts than when you're 45. Uh, and making sure that it's fair and consistent across the board as well. 
how can we support people to not burn out of this field and to still love what they're doing into their 60s? I think that should be our goal as a specialty. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And we want to retain all that um, experience and leadership and that value that they provide in some intangible ways. You know, all the things that like we were saying before, probably can't capture with a survey, but how much they're influencing other um, trainees and faculty and unit culture and all of that. I think that is really important too. I mean, I think all of us remember during training, having some faculty that seemed very unhappy and just really miserable in what they did. And it, it, it probably made all of us say, am I doing the right thing? Because you don't seem really happy. Um, but yet we also see the people that love what they do, even though they are have done it for many, many years. When we feel burned out, we are not at our best. We're not who we want to be. And so we really need to prevent that. So I think in all of these things, looking at work hours, looking at additional responsibilities, looking at all of this, what we want is to allow each and every one of us to achieve our best for a really long time. And I think that's where night call and age to stop doing night service comes into play because I do think that it is more challenging. I will say as someone who's getting older, it is more challenging the older you get um, to do nights. And, and, and so recognizing that and recognizing that there is a limitation to that capability at times and, and how can we be kinder to each other? Most of us who go into cardiac ICU are super type A, can do people, we can do everything. We don't need a break and we sacrifice everything. And then at some point you realize I've sacrificed all of myself and I can't do it. And, and that's what we don't want. I really like the way you frame that as a recognition, because I do think that's such a piece of this is saying, well, we're human. We're not as can do people as we are. We're not superhuman. So if I take a 30 hour call and then I don't sleep and I come back tomorrow not just what are the ramifications for myself, what are the ramifications for the trainees that are on with me the following day, what are the ramifications for the families that I'm caring for, for the patients that I'm caring for. I think we all have spent a lot of years pushing under the rug the idea that our physical limitations will affect our patients. And if we can directly correlate those things, then maybe there's more buy-in to talk about some of the things that lead to burnout in the future. I think that it would be remiss for us to not mentioned that you found very little racial and ethnic diversity among our CIC workforce. Do you have suggestions for how to diversify the workforce in the future? Thank you for mentioning that because it, I think it's one of the most important things that the survey showed. I don't think it was probably a surprise to anyone, but I have to say it was hard to see it kind of in black and white. And you can see that it it's across the board. It's particularly worse when we look at, at directors and like many other subspecialties, what we see in medicine is it becomes progressively less diverse from a racial and ethnic lens as we get to subspecialties. There are, I think, a couple of things we can do as, as a subspecialty. One is really first recognize the issue, how significant it is. And then two, I think it's going to take really concerted work for our subspecialty to invest in, in trainees, not just at the end round, not just for fourth years or for dual training, but really starting in, um, you know, from the beginning of training to bring people into the cardiac ICU to give them that experience. 
As an example, in, at our institution, we work with local high schools and we bring in shadowing students to start there to really start to consider this as a career and then put them into uh, intensive summer programs that give them research experience and more clinical experience to support them really even before they're going to college to give them sort of an idea of something that they could do. And I would personally propose that we really need that across the board to sort of start very early to support students that are going to be from more non-traditional backgrounds. And then the second part is that we have to recognize and really study our own programs to make sure that they're places that are, are free of bias and discrimination, because there are reasons that people choose not to go into specialties. Part of it is believing that that is an option for you and, and really being supported and getting mentorship early. And the part of it is really checking in with people and making sure that that's what they're feeling uh, in, in your workplace. And I think we're going to have to do it from both sides if we're going to see significant change in our field. And I, and I hope that we do, because we should, as a subspecialty, be the forefront of this issue. We should be the most diverse. We should push for this as a group to really balance in our population and be leaders. Thank you for highlighting that. I think that that's a really crucial part of the next step as we grow. Hopefully, as that expands, it will also um, be translated into leadership. Because as you were saying, I think the problem, just like you said, got magnified in places of leadership. And sometimes you don't know what you can do until you see it. <laughs> to see someone who looks like you or who came from a similar background as you and just to have it be visible is important. This is where, it, you know, it extends to we can't wait for something to happen. I mean, we have to be active in doing it, which means we're not going to have diversity in our workforce unless we actively work towards that. And we we actively welcome and engage and invite people into our workforce. And then the same thing goes for leadership. We don't wait for people to become leaders. We proactively look for leadership skills in people. And then we mentor and we support and we sponsor them. Um, and to tell people that who may not see themselves as leaders, when I was young, all the leaders were older white men. And so you don't see yourself in that role because that's not who I am and that's not what I look like. And then you think, okay, I'm not even that serious. So um, you have to, that's where like that we really rely on people recognizing leadership within us to welcome us into that fold and to, to, to encourage us. And so to me, this is all things that we need to be actively engaged in. So at every level from inviting people into our field and then inviting people into leadership, because it really does benefit our patients to have that diversity Patients want to see care providers that look like them, that feel they feel like can understand them. And it becomes vitally important for us when we are talking to people about, you know, often life and death situations. And if they don't feel that we can understand their culture or understand anything about them, then we're at a disadvantage. I think that's so true. The last part of the survey, um, you guys were describing training that everybody was really supporting having um, a formal accreditation for fourth year fellowship and strong support for more specific pediatric cardiac critical care um, questions for recertification and for a board exam. Do you have any other thoughts about like dual training versus fourth year training in our population? Do you expect any demographic shifts in the future? 
Yeah, I think uh, that we had a lot of uh, conversations just amongst our group. I think it's still an area that's of discussion between should you do a fourth year, should you do dual training? What What is clear is that dual training definitely takes more time, but it does allow for more flexibility in your job because there are certain programs that may require you to have a critical care training and there are some programs that will require you to have cardiology training. So dual training gives you the best opportunities. I think when you ask people in any given program, you can find people who feel really strongly that you must have critical care background to work in a cardiac ICU and really strongly that you must have cardiology training to work in a cardiac ICU. What I generally tell our trainees is that dual gives you the most options, but it also requires the most work and it may not fit into your life. It may not, it may have parts of that training that you really just don't want to do at all. And that a fourth year can be very reasonable, but we really look forward to seeing more consistency in the fourth years and having that a bit more standardized so that trainees are getting a more consistent experience across the board. That I would say is really an area that is actively being worked on, but definitely does need more work. I think the other, the other reason that that um, portion of the survey was really important is that it was a um, next step in a, a lot of work that Sarah Tabot has done in working towards a specific accreditation uh, or board certification for our specialty and recognizing that a cardiac intensivist um, does have unique training often and has unique um, responsibilities. um, And it would be nice to be able to demonstrate that with board certification. Um, And so for several steps that she has taken along the way is um, working with the American Board of Pediatrics subboards of both cardiology and critical care to talk about what that would take um, to achieve that certification. And so part of that was um, establishing in a curriculum, which is um, she did as a separate project that that we worked on, um, but um, but also to to assess amongst our current members of our field, who is interested in certification, who would be willing to do board certification and who supports that idea. So um, so that was another reason to add that to the survey so that we could take that next step towards truly developing um, sub-subspecialty certification in our field. I wanted to add in the one area where we looked at, at gender uh, discrimination because I, I think it's actually a, an important part of the paper. I just I wanted to make sure we highlighted, which was that when we looked at the attainment of director positions between men and women, sort of in the long term, what we found is that 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 was equivalent, meaning the percentage of women in the field was sort of equivalent to the number of, of positions, which was which was very heartening to see. But what we also found is that when we looked at at physicians in the field that were under 45, so years of age, so are more sort of more junior physicians, there's a significant number more of men who have attained a director position than women. And I think that this highlights a, a, a pretty important area across medicine that needs to be addressed, which is that women have a slower attainment to director positions and, and with that also to advancement in academic medicine. And that advancement, as we all know, is tied to money. And that means over time that women actually end up making quite a bit less money in medicine because they're slower to sort of attain that advancement. 
And unfortunately, what we found is that our field is not any different than other subspecialties with that issue. And this just sort of was a small piece highlighting it. But just as we talked about with uh, the issues with racial and ethnic disparity, we are seeing also that there is still more work to be done. Yes, lots of women are entering the field and, and hopefully that will change it over time. But we do need to keep attention on making sure that there's gender equality in terms of advancement uh, and, and that women are getting the same opportunities as men are in the field. I'm so glad you brought that up, Robin, because I think it's also what, what's sort of missing a little bit from this data is knowing that just because more women are entering the field is knowing if they're going to stay in the field. And is the reason there are more men because there's a level of attrition amongst women, particularly when their children are young, um, if they're choosing to have families, I would love to see the results of a secondary survey about maybe why that is. And I wonder too, if like sort of going back to the stepping back and thinking about like a systems or a cultural perspective on medicine, like do, like what does support even mean? And how are we being intentional about, you know, reaching out to people? How are we offering support? And does support not just need to look differently, maybe for different genders, for different um, ethnicities, even just throughout your career as you're, as you evolve, as your needs change and how are we, how can we best like adapt our community, each other, our maybe expectations, um, our definitions of what that support could look like and should look like, like, you know, maybe not one size fits all sort of thing. I think that's really important. One of the things that I recognized many years ago was um, how inflexible medicine is and it's inflexible in training and it's inflexible and really anytime along your faculty career. Someone once asked me one year when I was an early faculty person and that year we in cardiology matched all male fellows and the division chief at the time had come to me because I was one of not very many women faculty and said, do you think we're doing something wrong? You know, why, you know, I want to make sure he was, I mean, to his credit, he was great. He's like, I want to make sure we're not doing something wrong that I'm not aware of that would, you know, make us less, um, less uh, attractive to women. And I don't think that there was the next year we um, matched for women. So I think it was just happen chance, but um, it did make me realize, and I and I realize this as a fellowship director too. Training is very inflexible. There is no part time training, for example. You can't say I want to become a cardiologist, but I want to take five years to do it. I want to become an intensivist, but I want to take five years to do it. You know, or I want to be a cardiac intensivist and do both fellowships, but it's going to take me seven years and not five years. And that's not allowed. I mean, the ABP does not allow that. And so people can't say, you know, you know, I have conflicting areas where I want to be and I want to be able to do some part of the time and some of the other time. And I don't know of a study that says that you can't achieve just as much doing it over a longer period of time. I don't 
I just don't know of a study that shows that. So why don't we allow that? For example, why don't we allow young faculty to work part-time? I mean, it's, it's so unusual that an academic program would allow a faculty member to be part-time. That is, that's almost unheard of. And so I don't think we always have the flexibility. And I say that less because of promotion, but be say, if we really want to be diverse and we really want to welcome people into our field, we need to recognize that people have differing needs. And, and is it is does it make it less valid if somebody wants to do, say, for example, less time because of other obligations? Um, and, and we haven't up till now, like, really thought outside the box to say, you know, how can we provide that, that what somebody needs and meet them where they are? And then maybe in five years, they do become full time and they do, you know, move on, you know, down their career path. And so I think sometimes we need to think differently. I think that's so true. Because when I think about attrition, I don't know that many women personally who have completely stepped out of the cardiac ICU or stepped out of medicine. But I certainly know a fair number of women who have been very conscious about where can I get FTE to buy my time away because I need this time to do other things. And so when we look at attrition or we think about women leaving our workforce, I think we should also be thinking about where they're going and where their time is getting spent and whether that was a deliberate attempt to step away from 80 hour work weeks or whatever it is. I really like that, Nehan. And I think it also just gets to this broader sort of question in society, which is that women traditionally have taken more of the sort of home responsibilities, but we really need to change our field so that everyone has more balance. These hours were also not good for men and them being present in their families as well. And that really wanting that to go across the board to say, you know, we want, we want parents to be able to really be able to be with their children and spend time and also be really productive at work. We want everyone to be able to take care of their parents as they get older or, you know, be a good aunt and uncle um, and also just have wellness in their life and have other activities they do outside of work that, you know, whatever that might be that brings them joy and make sure that they can be a hundred percent when they're in the hospital and a hundred percent for those families in the ICU. And I think that it was, it's just been such a extreme thing for a lot of women that this has like really pushed forward. Uh, but the real answer is when I talk to my male colleagues, you know, they want to be at the soccer games. They want to be able to be home and, and see their babies, you know, uh, take their first step. They want that too. And the workforce traditionally has not allowed for it. Uh, and so I, I hope that these changes really can benefit really everyone. I'm so glad you said that because I think that, first of all, it's so true that our male colleagues deserve the same sort of accommodation to think about their family needs, but also that if we pigeonhole these things as a woman's issue or an issue for racial and ethnic minorities, then we forget about how these changes benefit everybody else. When one of us win, we all win. <laughs> um, so speaking of the workforce, we um, did mention a second article, and there was a companion article that came out of the same survey data called Assessment of Physician Training and Prediction of Workforce Needs in Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care in the United States um, in the same December 2021 cardiology in the young. The punchline that I got was that within the next five years or so at this trajectory, that perhaps our job market could be saturated could you speak a little more to that? 
Yeah, so this this part of it is really what inspired the survey to start with, I have to say. So, and it, it started by really being involved in the the fourth year fellowship um, standardization. And as part of that group and really working on how we're going to standardize fourth year training, we counted up all the groups because there was representation from all the advanced fellowship directors in this. And we suddenly realized that there were 19 programs that offered fellowships and it was something like 30, 40 fellows a year. And that doesn't even count the dual trained fellows. And so we suddenly, you know, just in my math at one um, PCICS meeting, I said, oh my gosh, we're we're training 50 people a year. Do we have 50 jobs a year? And so I said, well, let's let's look at that. Let's study it. And and we all recognize that it's a young field and we recognize that there's a lot of things that have really driven the need for more cardiac intensivists. There's been all these, all the cardiac ICUs that have separated in the last 10 to 20 years. So that led to new people. We went to in-house call that needed more people. We times we modified the, the number of faculties, we've grown, things like that. There have been a lot of need for faculty, but because we're a young field, um, there are not that many retirements right now. And although there's attrition because people are assuming other leadership jobs, it's not at the rate of the influx. And so that was really an, this was really an attempt to say, are we going to get saturated? Because part of our responsibility as mentors is to make sure that the people that we're training have jobs. And so that's a responsibility too. And so that was part of the, that was how this developed. I think the the other piece I would add is that maybe we should also think about how much we're all individually working and then that may adjust sort of our needs over time. All right, final question. So what's next? Do you have future plans to study our workforce? I think one of the most important things is the companion to everything that we've been talking about and almost everybody who did the survey and thank you to everyone who did the survey um, remembers that there were a number of questions related specifically to well-being and burnout and it doesn't take long in our field to not only recognize that we're at risk for burnout, but that we're also at risk for um, what I'll just say is general unwellness. So we really wanted to look at wellness in, in our group too. You know, are people having worse health um, issues related to our job? Um, and then we wanted to look at the, the mental health aspect. How healthy is our, our mental health? Um, are we suffering from depression and anxiety, um, stress? And then lastly, what's the incidence of burnout? And so those questions we have, and those are the the next step, hopefully a soon to be published article that will um, address all of those. And I'll just add on that I'm working with a group through the uh, World Congress that will be in 2023 to try to uh, study beyond our borders of the United States, what our field looks like. And so hopefully we'll kind of have a, a more global view of our our specialty as well. It's really exciting. We look forward to seeing your future work in this area too. We congratulate you both for adding so much insight into our field and hopefully sparking lots of good conversations across programs. So thank you again, Robin and Catherine, for speaking with us today about your study, Workforce Demographics and Unit Structure in Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care in the United States. We enjoyed having you on the podcast. And to all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.